I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, Grant F. Smith of the Institute for Research, Middle East Policy, returns to discuss the history of the Anti-Defamation League and its relationship over the decades with the FBI. This conversation happened in light of the Institute for Research, Middle East Policy's discovery, thanks to documents obtained from a FOIA request that the ADL filed a civil rights threat complaint that attempted to conflate pro-Palestinian charities with extremist far-right-wing white nationalists. In addition to discussing all of that, we'll also briefly cover the announcement of the FBI probe into the death of Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akla. All that and much more on this edition of Parallax Views. And now on to the conversation with Grant F. Smith of the Institute for Research, Middle East Policy. Welcome back to Parallax Views, one of my favorite guests and just all around awesome friend of the show, Grant F. Smith of the Institute for Research Middle East Policy. How are you doing, Grant? Hey, I'm doing good. I'm glad I've been upgraded to friend of the show status. (laughs) (laughs) So there is a lot going on uh, with returns uh, with regards to Israel right now. I mean, we have, uh, you know, the recent elections. I've done some shows on that. I know you heard them. But there's also, I guess, an FBI probe into the death of or killing of uh, Shireen Abu Akla, uh, who was a very beloved uh, journalist. Uh, Could you maybe give your opinions on that? What what are you thinking about it so far? Yeah, I found that to be interesting. And then there was a lot of press about how, oh, the Biden administration and AG didn't know that the FBI was opening a probe. But what I believe in looking at FBI investigations and doing a lot of FOIAs for their uh, files over the years is the FBI doesn't have a very good record of pursuing politically sensitive uh, investigations such as, uh, you know, anything having to do with Palestinians or Palestinian activists. And exhibit one is probably Alexander O'Day who was a Palestinian activist who was uh, killed in a bomb planted in his office in Santa Ana, California, back in 1985. And it's pretty clear, became fairly clear over time that uh, 
he was probably targeted by the Jewish Defense League um, and that they probably targeted him for his activism. He was on the uh, TV show Nightline. And uh, so, you know, the FBI said the FBI, excuse me, the FBI said it was going to investigate. And there are all sorts of leads, but uh, the prosecution never came. And that's still an open case. And the uh, American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee continues to for justice for Alex O'Day. So, um, you know, color me pessimistic, but I don't think that there's going to be any serious investigation, not only because... The FBI is extremely susceptible to political pressure, but also uh, the Israelis aren't going to cooperate with it anyway. So I I think that's not going to go anywhere, unfortunately. I was going to ask, what did you think about, uh, you know, it it sounds like Israeli officials are just openly saying, you know, we're not going to cooperate with any FBI investigation. Go screw yourself. I mean, they, they were bold about it. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you got any in a room and turned all the microphones and cameras off, they would probably say that uh, she was a national security risk and that if she was targeted, and although they wouldn't admit they targeted her, that uh, her uh, elimination was, you know, a positive thing for the state of Israel. So I don't think there's there are any tears lost. And you know, it's pretty open and shut based on a lot of the acoustic and video evidence that she was uh, targeted and shot. So <clears throat> don't expect any accountability because our $6 billion Israel affinity network in this country will make sure that it doesn't happen. So that's a good segue into uh, your latest piece at uh, the Institute for Research Middle East Policy. Um, and it's entitled ADL files FBI civil rights threat conflating white nationalists with pro-Palestinian charities. Uh, but let's go into the deeper history. What's the relationship between the uh, ADL and the FBI over the years? Anti-defamation yeah, well, league for people that uh, don't know. But yeah, it's a great question, and you don't see too much history on it. But you know the. ADL and the FBI emerged pretty much uh, almost at the same time. Um, You got to go back to the story of Leo Frank, who was an Atlanta chapter leader of B'nai B'rith, uh, who had a pencil factory down south, and he was convicted of murdering and raping his pencil factory employee, Mary Fagan, in 1913. Um, That case was moving towards commutation by Governor John Stanton. And as a wave of lobbying proclaiming Frank's innocence was moving toward a pardon, Frank was suddenly lynched in August 1915 in Marietta by a mob that stormed his prison. uh, And he was uh, lynched. He was uh, hung by a tree. And so... um, There's been an intense sort of reaction to that uh, over the years. And what happened uh, in terms of uh, B'nai B'rith is that they formed the Anti-Defamation League of B'nai B'rith on October 20, 1913. 
in response first to Frank's conviction and then his, uh, you know, lynching assassination. Um, and the league was really supposed to, according to its main <clears throat> uh, statement of purpose was to avoid and deter the defamation of Jews on stage and in moving pictures and in other walks of life uh, as its main overt purpose. And that moving pictures part is very important. Um, so that overt aim is further developed in a great book called Why Must Men Hate by Sigmund Livingston in 1945. But as I said, uh, the ADL has always had a major sort of unstated covert objective in the development of influence with the FBI and even state uh, and local law enforcement agencies and even uh, judges. There was a huge movement to get uh, Leon Frank's uh, sentence uh, commuted um, in 1986, the Georgia State Board of Pardons and Paroles posthumously pardoned Frank in 1986, even though uh, they did so without, quote, attempting to address the question of guilt or innocence, unquote. So the ADL has uh, functioned kind of in the background, uh, trying to develop deep ties to states and local law enforcement agencies uh, for the purpose of influencing them. It's long been my theory that the reason why there's been a great deal of ADL, FBI interaction over the years. Going is, back, I think, to the 40s, right? Yeah, going back most strongly to the 40s is that they wanted to stave off any sort of future Leo Frank incidents by knowing what's going on and working behind the scenes to slow things down and avert those sort of consequences, even before the stage of sort of uh, arrests and indictments. And that insider status became important in the 1940s when the FBI started looking seriously at, at Hollywood, uh, the film industry, they were under extreme threat of FBI investigations over communism or for being Soviet spies. And so uh, a Warner Brothers studio personnel director, Jack Holmes, who was an FBI informant, uh, basically laid out a story about how important Hollywood was to the ADL. Um, the ADL, according to Jack Holmes, was getting about $50 million a year from Hollywood in today's dollars back in the 40s. And they spent a huge amount of money uh, circulating Dr. John Lechner, um, who was a big opponent of uh, Japanese presence on the West Coast during World War II, a major proponent of internment. And the ADL to get attention of congressional investigations into Hollywood infiltration by communists actually lobbied Congress in favor of uh, internment of Japanese, according to Jack Holmes. And so, you know, they could have followed the principles they espouse today. They try to position themselves as having opposed mass internment of West Coast Japanese during World War II. But instead, in reality, in truth, uh, 
they threw the Japanese under the bus while secretly preparing testimony for Lechner to give to Congress to keep the FBI and the D's committee and all of the, uh, you know, Nixon types, McCarthyites from pursuing Hollywood for a time. So, uh, you know, they quietly lobbied behind the scenes uh, for the early release of the infamous spy Jonathan Pollard on humanitarian grounds. Uh, they worked overtime in arranging for high officials of the uh, Israeli uh, justice system to lobby Janet Reno to quash a prosecution of Roy Bullock, who was working alongside apartheid South African intelligence agency officers targeting human rights protesters in California in the 1990s who were targeting both South Africa and Israel. And so, you know, whenever there's a highly organized campaign going on, such as the decades-long campaign to obtain presidential pardons for weapons smugglers, such as Hank Greenspun of Las Vegas or Charles Winters, who smuggled uh, surplus World War II bombers to Israel, or Al Schwimmer, who smuggled a ton of aircraft to Palestine before it was Israel for the Israelis uh, to form a nation. You know, whenever there's a huge confab of Hollywood names, oftentimes those look like ADL campaigns to uh, so-called set the record straight. And I would even suspect that, you know, when Arnon Milchan came under, this is a famous director of all sorts of movies. Yeah, I, I think Milchan was involved in a, he worked on a bunch of Oliver Stone movies, like a producer and whatnot. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. He, he, uh, the Revenant and all sorts of, I mean, quite good movies, but you know, when he came under scrutiny for nuclear weapons, tech smuggling, suddenly there was a well-funded campaign by the LA police to award him their true blue award. And that kind of looked like an ADL op to me as well, although their name wasn't on it directly. So, you know, you know, back then they were a $50 million organization. Today they're a $100 million organization and they work extremely closely with the sort of Israel affinity ecosystem I mentioned in my book, Big Israel, to uh, do joint programs and really push hardline anti-Palestinian and pro-Israel narratives within law enforcement. And so, you know, the ADL today is entwined in all sorts of U.S. Middle East policy formulation and do a ton of training of all sorts of state and national police forces um, overseas with, you know, basically Israeli occupation armies and police forces training them in all sorts of things uh, through their ADL police exchange uh, program. And the intent is clearly to get FBI and ICE and other officials to identify with the Israeli narrative and be suspicious of anything pro-Palestinian, whether it's, you know, a small group in Florida or a major group that's got a BDS campaign underway. And so, you know, we've done a lot of Freedom of Information Act requests. We're the first to get voluminous files from the FBI back to the 1940s on the attempts to get uh, 
the ADL's regional offices in close contact with the FBI's own field offices. And we've been trying to get the curriculum that all special agents have to undergo that's sort of managed by the ADL. And we've been successful in getting a lot of things, but this most recent document dump from the FBI that was kind of the motivation for the article, uh, I think the two most important things that it uncovers and that I wrote up in that article, ADL files, FBI civil rights threat, conflating white nationalists with pro-Palestinian charities, uh, is the fact that they filed this very complete, uh, accurate threat report it's called a civil rights threat complaint against the white nationalist group Vanguard America, which uh, showed them unfurling banners on bridges, directing people to, you know, some website. But then they added in Friends of Sabeel and American Muslim Alliance, two organizations uh, of which I'm somewhat familiar with in their activities, uh, which uh, they tacked on at the end of their complaint, which was designed to trigger an FBI investigation. So, And, and I is, believe the FBI dismissed the conflation, right? They did, to their yeah. credit. To their the, credit. the ADL has an ideological disagreement with Friends of Sibyl, and there is no threat reporting. I think Correct. it's what they said. It didn't work. I mean, you know, the, the FBI basically said, nice try. It didn't work. But there are other cases where it's not so clear that they discarded uh, one of these warnings from the ADL. Uh, and I point out in the article how the ADL uh, liaison channel warned the FBI about a Jewish civil rights activist at the University of Minnesota, where I went to school. Uh, his name was Professor Matthew Stark, and they warned him about his, quote, involvement in the Negro integration movement in the Twin Cities area, and that, quote, Stark might have certain political aspirations in view of his recently avowed discontent with the policies and action of Mayor Naftalin and Calvin Hawkinson, chief of, chief of police, Minneapolis, unquote. So, you know, I wasn't at the U of M that far back, but it just kind of struck home to me how they clearly wanted to warn the FBI about Stark. Didn't matter that he was Jewish, didn't matter that he was, uh, you know, involved in civil rights. And I think he was endangered by that report because, of course, back at that time, the FBI had a lot of nefarious anti-civil rights activities going on. You know, they were spying on Martin Luther King. They were planting informants in movements. They were planting stories in the media. COINTELPRO. So, like, what's that? I said COINTELPRO. That, that's it. You stole the stole the acronym out of my mouth. It's COINTELPRO time. So, you know, I think that by doing that, they were endangering Stark. I think that it was... It's not clear from the record whether the FBI ever acted uh, against Stark. Uh, that's one thing that isn't clear from a lot of the FBI files. But what is clear is that J. Edgar Hoover, uh, after decades of requests by the ADL to share files, decades of requests to do joint events together, decades of requests to do uh, interchanges between the ADL field offices and field offices of the FBI, uh, Hoover finally 
broke down. And in 1968, he ordered all of his FBI field offices to establish liaisons with ADL offices. So, you know, he basically read some script, no doubt written for him that uh, the ADL, like the Bureau, is opposed to groups and individuals espousing bigotry, prejudice, and extremism. You know, uh, not quite true. There were tons of Israeli weapons smugglers who uh, <laughs> were very extreme at the time, and many of which that uh, Hoover called rascals, uh, like Hank Greenspun, the weapons smuggler from Las Vegas, who smuggled all sorts of war material to Israel. But anyway... He uh, basically agreed, caved under political pressure, and so the ADL was suddenly in with the FBI. And what they've done over the more recent years is really use what they call their uh, law enforcement exchange, LIAC, to do all sorts of questionable propaganda events for the FBI. And I highlight one which was on Operation Finale, the capture and trial of Adolf Eichmann. Uh, so they bring in all these FBI special agents and they tell them about how great uh, this kidnapping, rendition and execution of uh, the Nazi war criminal was. But, you know, that was run by Raphael Eitan, an Israeli spy who ran Jonathan Pollard against the United States, the most damaging haul of classified information in American history. Raphael he ties into Pitan the Numac story, right? Was he 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 infiltrated Numac when all the uranium was disappearing from Pennsylvania and reappearing outside Demona? So yeah, this is an extremely damaging uh, intelligence operative. Yet all these FBI agents are streaming through compulsory education by the ADL and its Israel affinity partners, which have the effect of lauding Raphael Eitan. So. You know, I just uh, I have to think that the attempt to kind of put uh, the uh, Muslim group and Friends of Sabil into a mixing bowl and kind of maybe dirty them up or at least get them to appear in the master file index as a hit within the FBI's search engine uh, must have been one of the goals of that particular uh, filing. And, you know, the, the genius of it, I think, is the fact that this so-called civil rights threat report is tailored to trigger the FBI's obligation to investigate potential violations of Hate Crimes Prevention Act law. So the FBI, or excuse me, the ADL is very specifically tailoring a number of reports that it's filing. And they're just, if you read through the file that's linked, uh, the FOIA release, it's just the the information exchange and information flowing into the FBI. So is a continuous wave of information. It's a flood, constant meetings, constant reports, but they basically have to respond to those reports being filed by the ADL. And you know, they have in the past targeted Arab student groups. They've infiltrated Arab student groups. They've tried you to have FBI files up. on that, too, I believe. Yes, I do. And in fact, uh, wrote an article that appeared over at the Electronic Intifada on Arab students who had the Arab student organization and a couple of ADL 
uh, infiltrators got in and documented who was there, documented their security protocols of not inviting anyone who wasn't known to the other Arab student organization offices, and then reported everything to the FBI along with their plans uh, strategy for breaking up the Arab student organizations. Um, the FBI, of course, had its own spies <laughs> and infiltrators at, at the Arab student organization conferences and, and already knew what was going on. Uh, but one thing is clear, uh, these groups were broken up and they gradually drifted away from any sort of I would say, coordinated and effective communications and lobbying and uh, outreach campaign on behalf of understanding the uh, Palestinian plight and even, you know, what was going on in, in Arab countries and became kind of uh, ineffective, non-coordinated clubs at, at universities. So whether that was a direct effect of you know, ADL infiltration, who knows? But, you know, some of the very things that the ADL was criticizing the Arab student organization chapters for, such as, you know, trying to establish that only Arab Americans and Arab descendant and verifiable allies of the cause could get into their meetings. You know, it's, it's funny because um, although, as we talked about earlier, APAC is not meeting at their giant policy conference in Washington this year, uh, an umbrella organization of all the Jewish federations is meeting, and they're talking intensely about how to get the U.S. to be more supportive of Israel, and yet they have the same tactics of recommendation from their state chapters only uh, attendees and vouching for people so that the wrong people or investigative journalists or god forbid max blumenthal doesn't get in and report on what they're talking about um so it's kind of hypocritical that they try to break up and smear an organization for adopting kind of the same privacy tactics that they routinely use themselves i've probably been talking non-stop about well this, i was but... just gonna say i mean it's a it's such a brutal way to smear someone too. to, I mean, to, to conflate uh, pro-Palestinian activists with, you know, neo-Nazi thugs. Right. Um, it, I mean, it's just like, it's so icky to me. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it is. And it's, but it's also sort of a reflection of the hypocrisy of the ADL. I mean, they are, they probably put that in because friends of Sabil is a very pro BDS organization boycott divestment sanctions. They want to hold uh, Israel accountable for a lot of the things it's done. And the position of the ADL and a lot of the rest of this sort of Israel affinity organization ecosystem sees that in and of itself, BDS, as something that should be against the law. And they've worked to pass all sorts of state level bans and even a national anti-BDS law and all sorts of definitions uh, of uh, anti-Semitism that will capture this and make it illegal. But meanwhile, you've got the ADL head who is actively organizing a boycott of Madison Avenue, basically all of the advertisers on Twitter, 
if they aren't given sort of a uh, preferential perch for taking out content or influencing what appears on Twitter uh, as Elon Musk takes over the platform. So they want to be able to boycott, but they don't want anyone else to be able to boycott. And, you know, if you're out there in some states and you've got a newspaper uh, or you've, you're a education provider in Texas and you don't sign a waiver saying that you'll never boycott Israel. Well, they, they don't want you to be able to get state contracts. So, you know, this ecosystem and ADL are very anti-BDS because it's targeting the wrong, uh, the wrong uh, country, the wrong set of practices. But whenever uh, there's something that is uh, threatening such as this or Twitter, uh, not moderating content to their liking. Well, that's, that's an instance where a boycott should and can be launched and they're the first to do it. So, you know, all of these things continue to impact Americans. All of these things continue to impact the world we live in. Uh, and you know, the, the ADL emerged from a traumatic event. It's carried that trauma with it. It's got a set of practices and objectives, some of them above board, some of them very much not so, that it continues to roll out. And, and we're lucky to even get a small glimpse, I feel, uh, for what this $100 million a year organization is doing uh, in the United States. Real quick before we close out, I mean, did they even really provide any evidence that, you know, like the, the American Muslim Alliance was... Like, like, what is their evidence to connect these groups to neo-Nazis and white supremacists? None whatsoever. Um, like I say, it's just kind of a mixing ball. You just kind of, I guess, uh, you know, they felt that if they could just throw in the toxic uh, Vanguard America with Friends of Sabeel and American Muslim Alliance that, hey, you know, why not? Throw it in the mixing bowl, send it in, see what happens. I mean... The bottom line is they compelled the FBI to take a look at these organizations by nature of including all of these organizations in the same report. So we're going to be taking a look at this to see if this tactic has been uh, repeated recently. Unfortunately, COVID slowed down FOIA responses at the FBI, like just, just about every other federal government entity. So it'll probably be a while before we get to see whether they think this is successful or not. But I think it kind of reveals yet another reason why the ADL is losing its luster as a bona fide sort of human rights organization. And it's been facing a lot of flack from, I would say, more legitimate organizations that are doing great work and uh you know, not engaged in the practices the ADL is engaged in. Also, I, I just said to ask, uh, because I saw you had an article on it from October, uh, what's going on with uh, Energex? Well, there's a lot going on with Energex. Uh, Energex is an Israeli company that has launched in the U.S. Um, shortly after it's launched. It was named by the U.N. Human Rights Commission as a Category G violator for building uh, a solar site on Palestinian territory using the resources of a West Bank community without compensation or any regard. And 
They've been heavily involved, invested in Golan Heights wind generation, using Israeli police and military to kind of beat back the uh, farmers and other people trying to preserve the cultural and viewshed uh, bucolic agriculture area where the Israelis are, are appropriating land and resources for energy. So there's a lot going on in terms of their ongoing seizure of land overseas in the United States, they've hit a lot of obstacles. Communities across Virginia have been uh, actively opposing their applications for conditional use permits to build solar sites across Virginia. They prefer that other companies do that because Energix has imported a lot of its worst practices into the U.S., such as using very toxic solar panels that only 5% uh, of the world uh, uses, uh, cadmium telluride panels, because they're really, they really don't treat landowners very well. They've had a ton of environmental violations lodged against them by state entities and townships for allowing uh, stormwater runoff to destroy neighboring property. So they very quickly generated an extremely bad reputation in Virginia and uh, tried to alter their business model by going stealth and no longer using their corporate name on any of their applications. So uh, one of their permits just failed this week uh, in October. Two of their permits failed. And because of the information that surrounding communities are accessing, they are losing tens of millions of dollars uh, in their bid to become a major uh, electricity generator in the U.S., even as other less problematic companies are surging ahead to uh, comply with state and national clean energy goals. So Energix, uh, Energix is running into a brick wall, and uh, I got to say they deserve it. Well, hey, Grant F. Smith, uh, I'm glad we could have you back on the show. And uh, let listeners know how they can get your books and um, your IRMAP. And you also write for uh, Washington Report on Middle East Affairs. Yeah, so you can usually catch something from me on Wormia Magazine, on antiwar.com. You can go to our brand new spanking better website, irmep.org or irmep.com. Check out the listing of books. Check out the latest reports. Sign up for our email uh, reports that come out on a periodic basis. Uh, you'll see any conference announcements there. And uh, we've got our own podcast on the creation of APAC and another one that's the best of all of our conference series presentations. So yeah, check it out, irmep.org. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Grant F. Smith and that you'll check out the work of the Institute for Research, Middle East Policy. As always, if you support the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, Until next time.
You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.